This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 30th. Today, how Democratic candidates are responding to the impeachment inquiry, coming up with a real-world plan for reparations, and China's pork problem. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Sean Sullivan, and I cover the presidential race for The Washington Post. It is time for us to call out this illegal behavior and start impeachment proceedings right now. Sean Sullivan has been reporting on how Democratic presidential candidates are handling the impeachment question on the campaign trail. What they're trying to do is strike a balance that might ultimately be a pretty difficult balance to strike. Based on the material that they acknowledge today, it seems to me it's awful hard to avoid the conclusion that it is an impeachable offense and a violation of constitutional responsibility. On the one hand, they are trying to respond to rising concerns that Democratic voters have about President Trump's conduct. Look, he's made it clear that he deserves to be impeached. At the same time, they're still trying to talk about the issues, health care, climate change, Income inequality, economic concerns, these are the uh, kitchen table issues is what Democratic strategists often refer to this as. I am confident in the ability of the House and Senate to deal with this. My job is just to go out and flat beat him. So the question is, are they going to be able to find the right balance that voters want to hear for them in the coming weeks? And what are some of the specific things that candidates have said on the trail? Well, we've heard from a majority of the candidates that they support this impeachment inquiry. But a lot of them are saying we need to see the facts, we need to weigh what evidence comes before us. And another interesting variable here is that you have a lot of senators who are running for president. So if the House does impeach President Trump, you have this unusual situation where you have these senators who are running to try to replace Trump, but then they're also effectively jurors in a trial if the Senate decides to move forward with the trial. And so what we're hearing is a lot of careful criticism from these Democratic candidates. They're saying they're very, very concerned about President Trump's behavior. They think that Congress should move forward with this impeachment inquiry. But when it comes to whether Trump should be impeached, some of these candidates are holding back, at least right now, in saying whether that should happen. You know, I think we should take it one step at a time. And right now, I am very, um, I, I have nothing but praise for Nancy Pelosi and the members of the House of Representatives. Because if they were in that position of having to vote to convict President Trump of articles of impeachment, that they wouldn't want to look like this is only a political move for them and trying to take down the president that they're going up against in, in an election campaign. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Senator Bernie Sanders was pressed about this last week by reporters. And he said, look, I'm not going to come out right now and say how I would vote because I would be a member of the jury. It would be inappropriate, he said, to make that judgment. So we'll see if it does come to that. But it does put these lawmakers in somewhat of an awkward position of trying to maintain their position as senators, jurors, really, but also as candidates who are running against Trump. 
Are there some candidates for whom the impeachment inquiry is more politically advantageous? I'm not sure we know the answer to that question yet. A lot of Democrats I talk to tend to believe that the candidates in the top tier right now are the ones who maybe stand to benefit the most. And the reason that they give for that is that they believe it's harder for a second tier candidate to have a breakthrough moment in this environment because everybody is so laser focused on impeachment, on President Trump, on what's happening, the latest development, which sometimes seems to be changing by the hour. So there is a belief in the Democratic Party right now that if you are not a top tier candidate, it's going to be harder and harder for you to break through. Another candidate that people point to is Elizabeth Warren. Her allies say, look, she has been running on a platform of tackling corruption, of saying, I am the person who's best equipped to go to Washington and to combat corruption. So they believe this is in her wheelhouse. This is the kind of issue that plays into her campaign. It's a natural thing for her to talk about. And if she's going to have to devote more time to this issue on the campaign trail, they believe, look, it's not really the end of the world. It's actually potentially a positive for her. And then, of course, you have Joe Biden, who's in this unique position that no other candidate is in. Well, that was going to be my next question, because it seems like the Joe Biden situation is especially awkward because you do want to come out in opposition to the president, but also not give air to the accusations that the president has been making about him and his son. That's exactly right. And when you talk to the Biden campaign, when you talk to Biden allies, what you hear from them is, look, this is a chance for us to demonstrate that we can go one-on-one against President Trump. This is something that is a good opportunity for us. We can show voters that if the general election were starting now, this is how it would look. But there is a risk, and even some Biden allies acknowledge that there's a risk, that voters who are not paying super close attention to every single detail might look at the situation and say, well, hold on a second. President Trump and his allies are saying a bunch of things about Joe Biden, about Hunter Biden, about Ukraine. What is this all about? Is this a liability? Is this an election that we want to run for the next year, even though there is no evidence, as the Biden campaign has pointed out, uh, that Hunter Biden did anything wrong or that Joe Biden himself did anything wrong? Just having those questions kind of linger over him is something that Democrats right now, even some who support Biden, are looking at with sort of nervous eyes at this moment. Yeah, I wonder if behind the scenes, members of Biden's staff are worried that this could be the 2020 version of like the Hillary Clinton and her emails ongoing saga. That's the big question right now is are voters going to look at this and develop sort of a fatigue and say, hey, I like Joe Biden. I think he's a good candidate against Trump, but I don't really want to run a nine month, 10 month election that is going to be bogged down by rumors, misinformation, nasty attacks, conflicting stories from both sides. And my colleague Matt Viser has a story this week about some growing nervousness among Biden allies about his ability to navigate these really, really turbulent political waters. There's even been some talk among some of them about potentially forming a super PAC to defend him at a time when he's taking all sorts of incoming attacks, both from Republicans and from Democrats. You mentioned before that a lot of the 
candidates and campaigns are worried about this idea that the impeachment inquiry will distract from the issues that they typically do well on, things like talking about health care or climate change or income inequality. How are they trying to navigate that? Well, right now, the candidates are navigating that by not stopping the discussion about those things. They're still bringing them up on the campaign trail. They're still talking about them on social media. And a lot of Democrats look at the 2018 election as a model for success. There was a lot of anger with President Trump. There was a lot of anger with the Republican Party. But you didn't necessarily hear Democrats, particularly in swing districts that they won, talk about Trump 24-7 all the time. They talked about health care. They talked about the economy. They talked about, again, these so-called kitchen table issues. And they had a lot of success with that. They, they were able to win with that. And so I think right now some of these candidates are trying to approach it through the same lens. But the difficulty is it's a whole different situation. It's a presidential race. The impeachment inquiry is literally happening as we speak right now. It's moving forward. So how do you navigate those things? We'll see in the coming weeks, especially at town halls, when voters get to stand up and ask these candidates questions. Are they going to get six, seven, eight questions about health care or are they going to get every question about impeachment, about President Trump? And certainly there is worry in the Democratic Party uh, that if they don't talk enough about those kitchen table issues, it will hurt them in November. Sean Sullivan covers national politics for The Post. The idea that Black Americans should receive reparations for slavery has been around for a very long time. But up until recently, it was somewhat of a fringe idea and a political non-starter. I think one thing that is really interesting to think about is that Barack Obama, for example, the former president, has always been a little coy about this conversation. Wes Lowry covers the intersection of race and politics for The Post. But he's someone who, when has, was asked previously about the issues of reparations, would always talk about how completely unpolitically feasible it was. And so it wasn't even worth having a real conversation. Like, he wouldn't entertain the theoretical conversation. Obama expressed that in 2016, in a conversation with the person who had brought the issue of reparations into the mainstream. That was Ta-Nehisi Coates, who was, at the time, a journalist for The Atlantic. Coates wrote an essay in 2014 that went viral. It was called The Case for Reparations. Making this kind of complete argument, the argument not being this is only about slavery, but rather that slavery created a specific set of ills that followed the set of people, the descendants of enslaved people up until today, whether it be the Jim Crow system across the South, whether it be residential and housing segregation across much of the North and in major cities following the Great Migration. The idea here was that Black Americans, and specifically Americans who are the descendants of slaves, have faced structural impediments that have not allowed them to accumulate wealth, and therefore the United States government has to make them whole in some type of way. Now, five years after that essay was published, the idea of reparations has started to gain momentum as something that could be politically feasible. And Democrats running for president have latched on. We know that racialized violence and terrorism has persisted from Reconstruction Look, well into the 19th century. We are a country that was built on the 
principle of liberty, but on the backs of enslaved people. We have had a history of redlining, of excluding, in particular, African-American homeowners. from. And I've said that, you know, if we compensate people under our Constitution, uh, if we take their property, why wouldn't you compensate people who actually were considered property? Now you have a lot of politicians, certainly among the Democrats, who are willing to have the theoretical conversation, who are willing to say, well, of course, folks deserve something if the government took away from them. Now, that is a massive shift in our mainstream politics, even in the last five years, 10 years, 15 years. It feels like this is the kind of thing that in the past few years has gotten a lot of attention, but it's not actually a new idea. Not at all. I I think there's a mistake sometimes in thinking of the conversation of about reparations as a new conversation. In fact, from the very first days after the fall of slavery in the United States of America, there was a discussion about what was owed to enslaved people. This goes back to the idea of them being owed 40 acres and a mule, right? The fact that you had people who had worked the land, had helped physically build the country, yet had been denied the opportunity to own land themselves. And what was the obligation then of the government or, in fact, of the plantation owners to now provide for these folks? This is a conversation that has always existed. It was a major push of a lot of the early black elected officials across the South and elsewhere. And efforts to do that largely got undone via Reconstruction in the early 1900s. For the century that follows, the conversation around reparations for enslaved people is largely something that exists on the margins of black politics. It's something that loses a lot of its momentum in more mainstream spaces, however, has a bit of a resurgence starting in the late 1980s when Congress approved a form of reparations for Japanese who had been interned during World War II. And so there was this idea that if people who had suffered through internment were owed some sort of reparations, that maybe that there was the same responsibility for people who had gone through slavery. And the idea that the process by which Congress and the government approved both cash reparations and an official apology for Japanese internment might create a roadmap that Black Americans could follow in securing some type of reparations for slavery. What's interesting is that when we do have this debate, a lot of it is Should we or should we not have a form of reparations? But the thing that I think people haven't been talking about as much so far is who exactly would receive these reparations? And I think that that is a key and crucial part of the question, right? Like once you get beyond the theoretical idea, what would something like this look in terms of implementation? One of the ways people have dismissed this as a radical idea for a long time is, well, how would you even do this? How would you even figure out who the descendants of slaves are, if they, who, who is owed this, right? There are also questions about what would that look like in cases of people who themselves are wealthy, right? And, and do they deserve it? But beyond that, especially, you know, if you look at the last several decades of kind of black politics in the United States of America, there's been a kind of a growing pan-Africanism, the idea that all the members of the diaspora are connected in a way, and kind of a growing knowledge even among Americans of slavery elsewhere, whether that be in the you know West Indies or Caribbean islands. or And so one of the key crucial clash points here is who would be eligible. So you have been talking to someone who is thinking about that question, who is trying to come up with a proposal of actually who would be a recipient of reparations. One of the leading academics in this space is Sandy Darity, who's an economist at Duke. He did a ton of work, and he has done a ton of work around the ideas 
of the racial wealth gap. The idea that in terms of how much money a given family has access to, has saved up, is passed down generationally, that there is a massive gulf between white families and black families, and that that gulf starts to explain many other disparities. And so he has also been someone who previously has both studied and advocated for some form of reparations for black Americans who are the descendants of slaves here in America. And so what he's done recently is he's put together kind of a super team of academics and activists to try to roll out what will be kind of a formal proposal for what reparations could look like in the United States of America. And so they're going to create a report where they both detail why they think this is something that is clearly deserved and important, but also try to lay out a roadmap of how this could be further studied, but then also if Congress were willing to implement such a program, who would be eligible and what that would look like. And so at least from what they have discussed so far, what is their sense of who should be eligible? So Professor Darity has always been someone who believes kind of in a more strict, you have to be able to trace yourself to someone who is enslaved here in the United States of America, as opposed to someone who might be able to trace themselves to someone that's enslaved in Haiti or Barbados or the Bahamas, right, or Jamaica. And the argument there being that in terms of kind of the legal mechanism, what the United States government owes, it's very hard to argue that the United States of America owes money to someone whose ancestors were not actually enslaved here in America, right? Now, that doesn't like erase their history or what happened to them, but it's like, who's paying the debt? But is there confidence that people would actually be able to trace back with certainty that they did descend from slaves who were enslaved in America versus people who might have been enslaved in the Caribbean who ended up immigrating to the U.S.? Yes. You know, what we know, especially, you know, with the rise of a lot of the ancestry programs and websites that we're dealing with now, but what we also know about how judiciously American slave owners documented their property is that most black Americans can trace themselves either. So if you're a black descendant of American slaves, most people can trace themselves to American emancipation, right? If you're someone who's immigrated afterwards, most of those families can trace to when they arrived in the United States, right? And so there isn't, Darity at least doesn't think there's much concern about being able to do this with accuracy, that in fact, most black Americans can figure out if their families arrived afterwards or if they were families who were here at the time of emancipation. So I think that in some ways, what they're proposing makes a lot of sense, especially if you're using the model of Japanese internment. You look at the people who were victims of this American system, you look at their descendants, and those are the people that you're looking to give reparations to. But what is the case for why that isn't the right way to be thinking about who should be eligible? So the best arguments against that are that the transatlantic slave trade was not an ill perpetrated just by the United States of America, rather by any number of colonial powers, Spain, Britain, Portugal, that the black experience, the experience across the diaspora is not something that can be very easily segregated that way? What if you were someone whose ancestors were briefly enslaved in Florida or Georgia and then moved down to Haiti? 
to whom should that person make their claim? And beyond that, I think there's a concern, and a lot of this is about messaging, not even about the policy specifics, but there's also a concern in this moment where you have a lot of folks who work in organizing or activism around issues of immigrants and immigrants' rights and black immigrants' rights. Sometimes our national conversation around immigration is extremely Latino-focused, but what we also know is that many, many immigrants are black. And there's a concern among some of the activists and some of the organizers that in this moment, any effort to try to segregate out different sets of black people in America could only further some of the ethnic tension that already exists there, right? There is a frustration among a fair number of kind of American-born black people that, hey, immigrants are coming in and they're becoming the beneficiaries of affirmative action policies that really were intended for us or that they hold stereotypes and anti-blackness in the same way that white Americans might. And vice versa, right? That there's certainly a strand of nativism and xenophobia among black Americans, just as there is among all Americans, right? And so there is a fear among some folks who work in this space that engaging in a massive effort to try to delineate who is American black and descendant of slave versus who is this in a moment where there's the impression or the fear that all black people might be facing some type of threat right now, that that could be counterproductive or even dangerous. I also think that it's a really complicated question because part of the case for why reparations should exist is not only because of the institution of slavery as it existed up until the 1860s, but because all of the ramifications of that, Mm -hmm. right? The way that people were barred from jobs and were barred from owning property and passing down property to their children and redlining and all of the different forms of institutional racism that followed families for generations. But Those things didn't only affect black people who had been previously enslaved. They also affected black people who weren't slaves, but who still suffered from the circumstances that came about as a result of slavery. And so where do you kind of pull that apart? And I think that's one of the crucial questions, right? And so there becomes a question, and I think this is something that would have to be addressed in the study and the process, like in the conversation, are you implementing a reparations program that is specifically about slavery? And does that program then preclude or exclude the ability to implement subsequent programs? And so were you to later on implement a program that was reparations for housing redlining, well, then anyone who might have been subject to that could be eligible for it, right? I think this is one of the chief challenges in this space, and this is one of the big debates that's happening is that it is both true that there are a set of people who are the descendant of American slaves who have historically experienced a very specific set of things, right? That their American experience is in fact different than everyone else's, even if other people also have similar experiences, right? And so how do you acknowledge both of those things? And does one have to necessarily exclude the other? And like I said, I'm not sure that that conversation, which still seems a little kind of early in terms of its mainstream application, has fully grappled with all of those things. Wesley Lowry is a national reporter for The Post.
What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. Tuesday is the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, and the country is facing an unexpected crisis. China consumes half of the world's pork. There are huge pork eaters here. Like pork is in everything, uh, which I know all too well because I'm a vegetarian and I have to try and get it out of everything I eat. I'm Anna Fifield. I cover China for The Washington Post. There was a big outbreak last year of African swine flu, which is this contagious virus amongst pigs, which spread like wildfire through China and led to a huge cull in the pig population and has resulted now in a huge shortage of pork. And this is uh, being felt particularly right now because we are entering a very important holiday in China. It is the national holidays known as Golden Week, where there's a whole string of holidays all in a row and pretty much the entire country stops for a week. So this is a really big deal. And the government is extremely worried that Chinese people will be very unhappy when they return to their hometowns and get ready for these family feasts and discover that the price of pork has risen so much and that it's unaffordable for many people. Well, just like the United States has strategic petroleum reserves, China has strategic pork reserves where they have both live pigs uh, held in reserve, but also a lot of stores of frozen pork. The authorities have been pulling thousands of tons of pork out from these strategic reserves almost every day and sending them out for auction at markets around the country to try to make sure there is some more supply going into these places and to try to minimize the impact of these shortages ahead of the holidays. So the Communist Party really wants this uh, celebration of its 70th anniversary to be an unalloyed, you know, success story. There's going to be this huge parade on Tuesday and the party has gone to great lengths to make sure everything is absolutely perfect for this big celebration. But the specter of uh, people not having pork on their tables or not being able to celebrate as they usually would uh, is casting something of a cloud over this and causing concerns amongst the leaders of the Communist Party that this may have political ramifications for them, that this is not just about being able to have a feast on the national day, but if people are uh, complaining that they can't afford to buy what is a staple meat in China, that that might lead to political grievances. So this is not just about what's on the table, it's a very political question for the Communist Party here. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. 
And a special shout out to Trisha Olson, a listener who reached out about our coverage of the impeachment inquiry and whistleblower complaint last week. Trisha said that after listening, she decided to subscribe to The Washington Post. That is a big deal for us. So, Trisha, thank you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.